Hey, everybody. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me on this Super Monday edition of Down to Earth. I say Super Monday because today is the day after the Super Bowl. And as you can tell, my voice did all the screaming and yelling yesterday. Oh, what a game. What a glorious game. I can't begin to tell you. It's one of the best football games I have seen in a while. (laughs) Wasn't it? How about them Chiefs? Go Chiefs. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The Chiefs took that ball and ran with it. I, I, at six minutes, six minutes to the end of the game, I gave up. I was sitting there like, oh, my God, we've come this far. I guess this was good. <laughs> I had given up. And what do you know? Patrick Mahomes came back and brought the game, the game home. And I can't begin to tell you I had no voice left. I was that I thought the neighbors were going to call the cops. <laughs> I was yelling. I was yelling. I, I literally couldn't believe it. By the time the game was done, I was speechless. What a game. <laughs> what a game. So you can tell that I'm a football fan. But you know something I, I learned watching the game yesterday was football has been apparently a much bigger part of my life than I thought because my children told me they understood the game better than I did. I mean, I was shocked. I was sitting there like, and they understood how the game is played and they knew the personalities, you know, in a bygone, you know, a couple of years ago, right? When they did, when the NFL did the 100, you remember that? And they showed the grades. They were like, I remember him. When Troy Aikman's voice and face showed up as one of the commentators of the game, my oldest daughter said, I know his face. Isn't that Troy? And I was like, oh, my gosh. She said, Mom, it was Sundays. Football defined our Sundays when we were growing up. It tells you a little bit about children. Raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he gets old, he shall not depart from it, right? So there's still hope. There's still hope. There's still hope. And I was like, well, at least you have a talking point. So when you meet people now, you know, you can talk about football, you know, in addition to the other things you can talk about, you might just meet your husband might just be somebody who is interested in football and it starts a conversation. So there you go. Tell mommy. Thanks. <laughs> it was quite the thing, but thank you. How was your Super Bowl? How did you do? I, I did as usual. I'm the mom. So they're kind of looking at you like they're hungry. You know, children have this way of looking at you with that look. And you know it's your turn to go in the kitchen and do something. So I had to do all the cooking, you know, and all the prepping. Oh, my God. But they have leftovers, though. So I guess I don't have to cook today. What do you think? <laughs> Somebody's laughing. I may not have to cook today. Right. But how about that Super Bowl, though? Did you all enjoy Jennifer Lopez, J-Lo dancing on the pole? Just, just silently nod. Silently nod, because I know you did. <laughs> I know you all did. I know you did. That was all for entertainment and seduction because I know men were looking at it with a smirk and a smile. They knew exactly how to get you all and so on. And I have no problems with it. I mean, I thought it was a bit over the top because there are younger children watching it. So you kind of want them not to ask questions about Okay, you don't want them to go in their phones and start looking up images and stuff before you are ready for them to do so. But it's Hollywood, and that's what they do in Hollywood. 
So they brought Hollywood to Miami Wood and to Super Bowl Wood. And so I guess the Super Bowl has changed. The audience has changed. The entertainers have changed. So they're going to do it. But I can't say much because I think Beyonce did the same thing a couple of years ago, didn't she? Didn't she dance with all everything out there? Well, she set the standards. So I guess it is what it is. The halftime show was perhaps the best we have seen. Isn't it? Let's just say so. <laughs> I mean, last year it was dismal. Maroon 5 or whatever, Adam Levine, I don't think he has shown his face in public since. It was horrible last year, but this year it was entertaining. And of course, it had a Latin flavor, which we all like, right? And it was Miami. And Miami is just Miami. It was it was a super produced Super Bowl that just is what it is about, about athleticism and sportsmanship, and that's what it achieved. I was so happy to see it. And, of course, it was sort of nostalgic because I saw some people, hey, I saw some people I haven't seen in a while, right? So it was good to, to see some faces and so on. It was great. It was a good thing. So. I know there's going to be a lot. I mean, I posted a meme myself. I, I had to repost it because it looked too good. You know, about what 50-year-old women looked like in 1985. And in 2020, 50-year-old women are swinging from a pole, I swear. I swear the Internet, again, has won the game. <laughs> the Internet did that. <laughs> It was quite the thing, but you know something? It was all good fun. It's exactly what we wanted, a distraction, and it did that. It distracted us, and it kept us entertained. <clears throat> right, so that's how that works, right? So today, I want to talk about something serious, the power of privileged neighborhoods, and I kind of want to delve into your psyche just a little bit and to get a gauge, because when you give me feedback, I get an idea of what the public is thinking because you are the public, right? You and I form a part of the public. So I sort of like me pitching an idea to you. And then your response tells me what exactly is going on in the minds of people, right? And uh, I live in Detroit, Michigan. And so it, it's kind of, and I grew up in the British Caribbean. So my, my, I might sound just a little bit different, right? Is that okay? But the the amazing thing is that I read this article about some two weeks ago. You like my hair? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was cursed out on Twitter last night because, hey, I forgot to mention this part. Demi Lovato performed the national anthem. She did a terrific job. But guess what? I didn't recognize the artist. So I had to ask. I said, who is that? And they said, Demi Lovato. So I said, isn't Demi Lovato a white girl, an Italian? And they said, yes. So I said, how come she looks so dark? They, so I commented on that on Twitter. The excessive tan made her look ambiguously ethnic. I don't know why people don't want to be who they are. And somebody called me all kinds of names. I had to report them on Twitter. It is my opinion. I mean, she looked ambiguously ethnic and as far as I'm concerned if you want to co-opt and look like someone else of another ethnicity then you should be prepared to walk in their shoes and I'm like y'all are not doing anything about social justice you're all not doing anything about the racism and other consequences of being black or being ethnic but when it suits you you want to go spray some dark tan on you 
and make you look different than how you were created. I don't get that. I really don't get that, but that's my opinion, right? So there was that. But uh, I want to talk about the power of privileged neighborhoods. And I want to talk about it because something interesting is ha- has happened. I have observed over time, excuse me, uh, how people in uh, different neighborhoods, some hand sanitizer, if you will, uh, I have observed over time how people in different neighborhoods uh, and people who come from different backgrounds, how they uh, play out their lives. And I think uh, I study myself because I can't study you. So I read a lot about how people, what influences individuals to succeed and what makes them, what gives them the drive and ambition to continue pushing. And one of the things that I have come to accept as a fact of life, it's not, this is not an American thing. I think this happens anywhere in the world is how privilege impacts achievement and attainment. And you have to look at this from the perspective of how this influences the individual. This is going to help all of us, right? This is going to help us all. I promise you, when I'm done with this today, this is going to help us all. because It's because it's Motivation Monday, right? And it's going to help us all to look at ourselves and make some decisions about who we are, where we come from, and what can we do with these bag of tricks that we've been given. We, the people here, don't have any choice, didn't have a choice in where we were born or who we were born to. That's a given, right? We didn't have that choice. We didn't say, okay, if I'm going to be born, then I want to be born to Tom Jones, who lives on 2445 Ledgement Lane, blah, 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 Windermere, Florida, uh, three, two, wah, wah, wah. We didn't get that choice. We sort of arrived here and wherever you landed was where you landed. Now, over time, what we do know by now, if you've listened to Down to Earth, you recognize that economic and public policy initiatives have impacted people's lives, especially people of color, especially black people. You've seen that. So what happens in white neighborhoods. We never really talked about it because we never talked about it. But let's look at it from the other perspective. Uh, What we are finding, what social scientists are finding is that people born in a certain neighborhood seem to fare better in life. They achieve education and they fare better economically and academically. Why? Well, for one thing, one of the reasons is obviously that the school district that people in privileged neighborhoods attend have more resources because the parents in in those school districts, not only do they have a higher tax base and pay more taxes, but guess what? They have more influence and access to politicians. Politicians do not mess with them. Sometimes the politicians are invariably from the same neighborhoods themselves or live in the same neighborhoods. So they make sure that those neighborhoods are not impacted by budget cuts. So when they're looking to cut budgets, guess which neighborhoods? They look for people in disadvantaged neighborhoods. The interesting dynamic then is that white white kids in those neighborhoods fare better 
right? But here's the thing. Black kids who live in privileged neighborhoods still don't fare better. They're, that's key. We need to look at why that is so. That's key, but I'll come back to that. Therefore, disadvantaged neighborhoods, those folks do not fare well economically or academically. And those people have different interactions with the criminal justice system. When you look at it, you've got to ask yourself, now looking at this data, what does this mean? What, why does this happen? Why, 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 what is promoting this? Why does this happen? Well, there are some things that I want to point out, and I'm going to read them to you because I think we need to pay attention to them. One of them is legacy, admissions to college campuses. We all know how that works. So the parents went to this college, then their children go to this college, right? Uh, family wealth, yeah? So the parents have more money saved, more money put away. Social networks. The parents are more well-connected socially. And institutional factors, racism, classism, but racism being the primary factor. So when you look at this then, you have to look at what are the factors that make, that, that predict how people will do. Because that's what it is. They studied a group of folks over time from 1968 and followed them through school until they graduated and saw how they fared. But what they followed white, white kids in advantaged neighborhoods and they followed black kids in disadvantaged neighborhoods. Then they followed black kids who live in advantaged neighborhoods and saw that there are factors that influence how people do. We still have issues in our world today stemming from racism. And those cultural issues still impact the way people are affected. It impacts people's lives. It impacts not just the delivery of public services, such as education and healthcare, but it also impacts, it also impacts what happens to the individual after they've gone to college. There are plenty of college graduates today who are black and Hispanic with degrees who still are not earning as much as they could have due to institutional racism. What is institutional racism? Well, it's the racism that is practiced in America. It's institutional because it's pervasive. It's not confined to any one group of people, one region, not one company. It's wherever an individual goes, there are barriers that prevent them from advancing. One of those barriers is the color of their skin. You noticed last night on the, on the Super Bowl that the NFL is making an attempt to level the playing field, yeah? Patrick Mahomes, the Super Bowl, the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, is a black man. He's a black kid. He's a black man, right? According to the laws of the United States from 18-whatever, if you have one drop of black blood, you are black. That's what they said, didn't they? Okay. So according to that, his father is black. That makes him black, right? So the NFL, remember the Colin Kaepernick situation three years ago when Colin Kaepernick knelt at the playing of the national anthem? At the time, he was the uh, quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. And he said he, he knelt to draw attention to the social justice issue 
of law enforcement brutality against black young black men. The NFL kicked him out, redlined him, didn't re-sign him, kicked him out, and that was the end of that, right? So the NFL suffered because black artists and black fans are not buying jerseys because they're like, oh, we ain't doing that with those bros, man. We're, we're not supporting that. In an attempt to redeem its image and to repair the breach that occurred between the NFL and the black public, the NFL is promoting this young man, Patrick Mahomes, sort of like a peacemaker to say, here it is. I know I did wrong with, with, with Cap. I can't bring him back because there are more powerful people who don't want him back. But I can do this in the meantime, as if a peace offering is going to make us forget. And while we're at it, let me use the Latin performers so that they don't to settle that, so they feel that they're part of the story. It's an interesting, that it's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Because it makes us want to look at, here we are in America, and we're still talking about race, even though people from other ethnic cultures, other ethnic groups are part of our culture. There should be no distinction that uh, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira are are Latin or of Latin descent. That should not be a factor. They're Americans, aren't they? Isn't that what it is, right? When people who are white uh, achieve stuff, we just say they're white. So why are we making the distinction for other for other folks? It's interesting. We need to take a look at it because in if you go to some people's Wikipedia pages. It will say African American, or it was, but it never says white American to a white person. It just says American. When Kobe Bryant died, I didn't know as much as I know knew of him as a basketball player. I wanted to see his statistics, so I went to Wikipedia to see where that information is stored. It's a verifiable source. I already knew enough about him because I remember when he started playing. He was a phenomena. He was an amazing kid with so much potential, had a grace about him that was eye-catching. He was competitive fiercely, but he had a grace, and he had that instinct to make himself great. He was always pushing himself. So as an athlete, he was admirable. But I didn't know all this other stuff about his family background, and I was curious. When I went to Wikipedia, they described him as an American basketball player. They didn't say African-American. I don't know if they have updated it, but on last Monday. And I said to myself, whoa, are we finally getting the message here? Stop describing people based on race and ethnic diversity. Describe people as people. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm like, finally, we're getting the message. Because we have done such a good job of destabilizing people because we were in an effort to protect what they perceived, what some believed was the majority, and to protect whatever privileges that they know of are are inherent and available in the society. They might just have created an institutional problem that's going to take some time to erase. 
privilege as we know it is confined only to the few. We all know that. That's how it works. But here is the thing. There is that intersection where privilege intersects with education. I still believe that everybody should have equal access to higher education. I believe that we should make it available and accessible because leave it up to the individual to choose whether they're going to pursue it or not. And we know kids, you know, when they're growing up, they have too much, right? We give them too much. Kids in America are privileged, right? They have so many things that people in other countries don't have. So they don't work hard. They're not motivated to work hard. But that does not mean that if this privilege is available to this group of people, it should not be made available to everyone in the society. No. Everybody should have access to that. So what happens in neighborhoods of high end? Well, people have access to more resources. They can pay for Kuman lessons. Is that how it's pronounced? Kuman, K-U-M-O-N, right? They can pay for more for uh, tutors to come in and help their kids to achieve a higher attainment level. But what they found out is that still even black kids who are sons and daughters of doctors and lawyers who live in high-end neighborhoods, whose parents can afford those things, those kids still don't do well because there is another factor that you have to take in. So in other words, what I'm saying is the factors that determine our success are not just our neighborhoods. That's a contributing factor. The other factors is the greater issue. It's what happens is where the individual uh, interacts, boom, with the institutions of government, the institutions of power, public and private. The problem with racism is that it's endemic. Racism does not just exist in private spaces and private corporations. Racism exists in government spaces. There's still a great racial disparity in how government jobs are distributed. The people at the top are always white, whether it's private industry or public industry. And that alone is a, is, is a, is a commentary on what happens to people down. Because if the people at the top are white, they are the ones creating and determining public policy. If there ain't nobody up there looking like me, how are they going to create a policy that looks like me? Do you see what I'm saying? And these are the issues. I made some notes as I thought about this that I, I thought I would share with you. Is that people in advantaged neighborhoods, uh, advantaged neighborhoods provide a boost. It's stronger than the negative effects that this disadvantaged neighborhoods have. But even when blacks live in neighborhoods that are advantaged, they still experience the negative impacts that are societal. And here's the thing, where people grew up affects their outlook, their perspective, their conduct, and their outcome. In a lot of ways, when I first came to the United States, I had had no prior experience or exposure to racism. I didn't know what it was. I thought people were impolite but I didn't see it and view it as racism. It took a long time. Friends, it took a while for me to understand it, to, to really internalize that this is racism. It took a really long time. Why? Because of the way I grew up. The way I grew up 
told me that I'm an individual and that I am entitled to being who I am and that whatever I want to do, I can do it because there were no limits or barriers in front of me. The only barrier was myself. That's what I was told when I was growing up. The sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want to do. There was a degree of social aptitude and social mobility, I must admit. They did expose you to those things if that is part of what will make you go up. But at this, by the same token, the, social, the, the racial barriers did not, in other words, I didn't have negative interactions with the system that said because you are from a different neighborhood or because you're black or because your race, you know, your racial profile does not match what we want it to be, you can't have this position. I never had those experiences early on. Therefore, I see no barriers or boundaries. They call it the immigrant thing. I don't see barriers or boundaries, but at the same token, a lot of immigrants end up being small business owners because we don't have a choice, because it's hard to assimilate. And when we try to assimilate, we are met with so many barriers. For some people, it's a language barrier. For some people, it's, it's cultural barriers. For some people, it's racial barriers. It depends. People just seem to randomly pick one out of the sky that they're going to play with you on today. There were cultural barriers. Even in the black community, I still experienced here in Detroit, Michigan, I experienced a lot of cultural barriers that prevented me from moving forward. I kid you not. There were people who, even people who were as black as I am, who made it impossible to move forward. Those people felt that because I was an outsider, that's what they said, they made it difficult. These things happen. They also said that I was different, that I didn't grow up reading Ebonics, that I didn't study their experience and that my experiences were different from their common experiences of racial uh, dominance and, and racial in, uh, in, in, inequality. I'm sorry, I'm struggling with with it because it's it, it's kind of like seriously. But to my perspective, we were all in this great pot that was melting. I didn't see the barriers, but they, having had the experience of living in disadvantaged situations, and even when they lived in advantaged neighborhoods, they still had to deal with the racial inequities and inequalities that they were subjected to. They turned it on me. Are you listening to me? I refer to that as colorism. You know that thing where people of the same ethnic group, you turn on one another? That's colorism. It's ridiculous. Because what you're doing is dividing, letting everybody else, the dominant group, divide and conquer. But the point I'm making is that where you are born and where you grew up has a say in what will propel you towards your outcome. Look at it this way. A person born in a disadvantaged neighborhood has two choices. Either you're going to let the disadvantage determine your outcome negatively, or you're going to let the disadvantage determine your outcome positively. Are you going to sit there and let the system run roughshod over you, or are you going to get up and fight it back? Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the choice. And so what, what, what role does the individual play in all of this? The individual has a choice. 
Because if you listen to the public policy and if you listen to what you experience, it's telling you that don't try. But in my experience, you will fail if you don't try. You need to still try. You need to still push and push and push until you find somebody who is not racist, until you find somebody who is willing to overlook the color of your skin. Now, is this widespread? Probably not. Is this something that people, some people make the choice that I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. So they join with the racist oppressors in order to survive. And then there are people like me who are like, no, 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 it's it's, it's not cool. It's not going to fly. They will listen and they will respect my perspective, but they may not write me a check. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I'm a threat to their established ways of thinking and practices. I understand myself and they understand that I understand myself. So if I'm willing to and I'm prepared for the blowback, then this is it. But like I say, somebody has to be the watchman on the wall. You see what I'm saying? So we need to look at how public policy then determines where people live. And this is interesting because we tend to just look at things the way the media presents it. You've got to understand that the media is part of the system. Look at it this way. One day, my mom, when she was alive, was watching TV. There was a news article, and I, told, I said to her, that's wrong. That's not exactly how, that's not how it happened. This is how it happened. You know what she said to me to show you the brainwashing that goes on in people's minds? She said, no, why would the news lie? Why would the news lie and say something that didn't happen? I said, because that's what they do. I said, but that's not how that situation happened. This is how it happened. And she said, well, how do you know? I said, because the people whom it happened to told me. And the news people know the truth, but they're presenting their version of the facts. She disbelieved me because she, she had already been brainwashed to believe that what the news reports is true, isn't it? Well, it's the same thing happening. It's kind of a mind conditioning that takes place in disadvantaged neighborhoods. A child born into a certain set of circumstances where due to generational and institutional poverty, they might not grow up with, a, with two parents in the home. They might have a parent who has to work two jobs, so there's not enough parental oversight. The messaging from the society, you've got to be clear with your messaging. We, when I was growing up, we used to talk about communication. That communication is not just what you say, it's how you say it, right? The messaging, today's world, we refer to that as messaging, right? So the messaging from the society is to a child born in those circumstances that you are predisposed to not making it. You are no good. Your background is no good. You will never be any good. There's nothing you can do to change that, my perception of you. So even if they make it out and go to college, at the back of their minds, their perception, what they think other people, the dominant group of people think about them is that they're no good and that nothing good will ever come out of them. You see what I'm saying? The difference is where I grew up, that messaging did not exist. It did not exist and it did not apply. And I don't know any spaces in which that messaging applied. It was always do your best, regardless of who you are. So because 
that messaging. I never heard that conditioning and my mind wasn't conditioned to that. Therefore, what that means is that I had a different outcome mentally, socially, because I thought different. You see how it comes down to how you think about yourself? And how we think about ourselves is influenced by the environment in which we come from. This is what they're talking about here. We literally created these advantaged and disadvantaged neighborhoods. Blacks are always whining about something. Whites are always whining about something too, right? And it's a matter of perspective. One of my viewers is saying blacks are always whining about something, but it's a matter of perspective. It's who you are. What you see, they are saying that this is what affects me because they have been always been at a disadvantage. You have to put yourself in their shoes. So from your perspective, you don't have anything to whine about because the society is geared up for you. Everything that you want to do, there are no barriers preventing you from doing what you want to do. But for a black person, that's not true. And for you, like I said, for years, I didn't understand that. I couldn't understand. I couldn't, I never understood it. I was like, why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? Until I had contact with the same system that kept people back. Then I realized that this is a greater problem. This is not an individual thing. This is an institutionalized mindset. So a kid who is growing up and who has already been conditioned to believe that they will never make it, what do you think is going to happen? It's, it's a fight in the mind for them to come forward. And yet there are others who are sitting on the fence saying, oh, I don't know about that. Listen, if you don't, if you don't wa- ever walk around in someone's shoes, how will you know what it fits and feels like? If you can't see by now that there are issues, if you think all this random poverty and violence in black neighborhoods is just because black people are just some wild bunch of people, are you crazy? Think. You're not thinking. That's exactly how the socialized institutions want you to think. That's crazy. Blacks in America have been living in America for over 400 years. You've socialized them to believe what you want them to believe. They, these things happen. And one of the things we're finding out about neighborhoods and so on is that even if you were to put investment in neighborhoods, it's not going to be a ready, set, goal thing because the conditioning is already there. So until we erase the philosophy that says, I am superior and you're inferior, until we get rid of that philosophy, we're still going to encounter these kinds of situations, it, it, it was quite the thing to look at because when I looked at it, it spoke to what happens to people who grew up in, in privileged backgrounds. And, and many of you are listening keenly because you're like, put yourself in it. You're black, but you grew up in a middle class or upper middle class uh, neighborhood. But when you went to school, you were made to feel different and you, you reconciled it with the fact that because you're black. So you did one of two things. You either adopted, adapted their ways so that you wouldn't feel left out or left behind, or you stayed out on the fringe and just rode in your skin. But you, your parents felt that if you went, if they lived in this neighborhood, they would have access to better 
schools, better educational backgrounds. But what everybody forgot was the institutionalized racism still existed and was still practiced and enforced on people. Food for thought, isn't it? And many of you are shaking your heads because you're like, I paid a ton of money to live in this neighborhood. I paid a ton of money to send my kids to private schools. I paid a ton of money to send them to private high schools. And yet still, we still live in a society that is going to make it difficult for them to progress in spite of all the impetus that you put in that was designed to change their outcome. The change and the effective, meaningful change is not going to come through economics. It has to come from within the mind. Not only the oppressors have to change their minds and change how they do things, but the oppressed has to recondition their minds. We all have a role to play in this. It's not just the oppressor. It's the oppressed. Part of my own unique situation is that I am looking at it from the outside because I didn't grow up in it. So it's interesting to me. I'm looking at it as what are the factors that have predisposed people to failing or to win? How do these, because my children live here and have lived here, right? So they grew up in this system. And I'm listening to them talk because even though I'm listening to them talk, I'm watching how the society and the institutionalized policies affect them. My oldest daughter has a story to tell. I told her she could be anything she wanted to be. I told both both my children that. I told her, go to school, work hard. And when you graduate, you will work hard. She went to work right after graduating law school. What do you think she encountered? Institutionalized racism from a firm in St. Clair Shores, Michigan. They treated the receptionist who is white better than my daughter with her advanced law degree. It's because my my daughter, it took her a while to understand it was racism because she's not accustomed to it because growing up in my household, what? She was taught that she could be anything she wanted to be. Her conditioning was different. She had to experience racism to understand it. My youngest daughter told me she'll never go to a white high school because they're not going to tell me anything bad about myself. That was her thing from the get-go. She's like, we are not going there. She said, I recognize I have to go to college and it's probably going to be a predominantly white college. She says, I'm putting up with that one. But she said, after that, I'm going to join Doctors Without Borders because I'm not about to deal with this racism stuff. There are some parts of the country, she says, I'm not even visiting because she says, I'm not going to deal with that. Do you see? So when my oldest daughter encountered institutionalized racism from people who were not socially better than her, yep, from people who were not academically better than her, It was a shock. She's the one with a law degree and the receptionist and the legal secretaries ain't ever been to college. She's been to three colleges. And yet they were acting as if they were better just because of institutionalized racism. It affected her. And I was like, don't let this determine your outcome. 
Let this be the fuel that fires you up. And let's do something about this. I'm going to ask you this. When your kids come home, because even within white households, they, they, they are economically advantaged and economically disadvantaged. When your children come home and tell you what they experience, what do you do with it? What do you tell them? What's the messaging that you tell them? Because see, I tell my children, you can't just sit there and take this. I tell my children, you are better than this, that nobody determines your outcome but yourself. They don't do that. because You know why? Because I have to be careful because it's all in the mind. So if this bullshit, institutionalized racism, bullshit and baloney that some people practice, think they can get away with it. They ruined my own children. Yeah, it's about to ruin that. Were you the one who stretched out and gave birth? Uh Uh-uh. I'm not about to sit here and let my children be ruined by some foolishness. It doesn't work for me. Do you see what I'm saying? Because what I have seen is how it has damaged people. Listen to me very carefully. There are people, white folks I know, whose kids grew up in advantaged neighborhoods. The messaging they gave their kids was, you can do anything you want to do because you're white. They never told them you needed to be a good person. They never told them you need to work hard for it. They never told them you've got to produce and put out. No, they told them because you're white, you're going to get everything. And what you see with those kids is they barely make it through college because the system is designed. White professors just give them a free freaking pass and they pass through the system right? And then they pass through the system, they come into the world, and guess what? They think that everything and everybody is available to them. They're the ones who end up raping people. They're the ones who end up killing people when they can't get because of the conditioning, because it's all in the mind. The parents told them from they were little from day one. They didn't set barriers and boundaries. They didn't tell them that this exists, you can have it because you deserve it, because you work for it. Here is the criteria. No, they told them you're going to get it because you're white, because of who you are. You're a white boy, you're a white girl, you're this. That's what they told them. And you don't believe me? Go turn the cameras on in people's homes. You'd be surprised what kind of conversation. And these are the same people who grow up to be derelicts of a human being. Because by the time they figure it out, they're already drugged out, they're already drunk. They already have a record because they're going to cross the line and have an intersection anyway. And the same criminal justice system often overlooks the attempts they make until it gets to a crescendo before something is done about it. That is the institutionalized foolishness that we need to talk about. That's really what needs to be fought because that is what is determining people's outcome. Isn't it unfair that someone else, Another group of people whom you have never met, who created a system 250 years ago. Isn't it unfair that they're determining your outcome no matter how much input you put in? Isn't it unfair? Don't you think so? Don't you think it's unfair? And you're sitting back if you're white. You're probably saying, well, hey, it worked for me. I've met many white people who don't even have a college degree who are retiring with the box. And there are black and Hispanic people who have college degrees, who are not retiring, feeling good about anything. Is that fair? One standard for one and another for another? No. We need to level the playing field. Because even black kids who are living in advantaged neighborhoods still encounter 
institutionalized racism. And those parents are silently nodding with me. They'll never identify and come forward. I'm never going to stop saying that because that is true. Black people know that already. Do you know what it is like to be black? If I, I'm glad I don't have a son. If I had a son, I would have to sit down and tell my son how to interact with the police because it's most likely that he will be pulled over and mistreated. If you don't like it, it is what it is. I'm sorry, but it is what it is. It, it's going to sound to you as if this is something that does not impact you, but it might not because lucky for you, look at the color of your skin. Maybe you don't have those issues. But my friend, look around the United States. Look at me. Want me to write the book and tell you how this happened to me? Me. Right? Me. Right? It happened to me. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Right? We got to change. It's institutionalized because we're trying to determine the outcome of people. Oh, what? Yeah. You know, yeah. But it's a different messaging. White parents tell white kids how to deal with the police. They're like, if they ever say anything to you, tell them you're going, you're a minor, call your mom. When a black kid speaks up, we all know what happens to him. What happens to him? He gets shot. That's the difference. Because of a greater factor that is operating called institutionalized racism. Of course, white people tell this. They said, call your mom. If you go down there, call your mom. If they take you down to the station, tell them you're going to call your parents. When a black kid says that, he's shot. Boom. Just like that. Okay? That's the difference. What's the difference? The color. That's it. It is what it is. My friend, I've published three books. I am widely known for my experiences in talking about violence and violence against women. You ever seen me on CNN? Why? This, baby. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So think about that. It took me a while to understand that. Took me a very long time. And that is not to say that in some sectors they're not making certain advances to change the system. And even those people who are trying to do that are encountering resistance. Like, why are you doing that? Why are you changing the system? Leave it. We like it the way it is. It keeps most of them out. There are people who are trying to change it, but they can only do so much. Because there are some people who like it the way it is. It suits them, right? Think about it. This is food for thought, my brother. This is food for thought. Think about that. Think about it. You can do this in your own time. You can Google or you can go on YouTube and watch how black parents, what black parents tell their children about interactions with police. We're the, we are the group of people, black and brown people, have to worry about police interaction. You guys never have to worry about being pulled over. I've told you the story before of my daughter who went to college with a girl who uh, had been driving for four years. So she drove the entire, from she got her license at, from she could have driven from 15, 
that they were in college and about to graduate. She was 21 or 22, and she had been driving for a while, and guess what? She never had a driver's license until she got pulled over, and they discovered she didn't have a license. She wasn't arrested. She wasn't taken down to the station. She was just given a citation to go get her license. My daughter was shocked. My daughter was like, seriously? You've been driving for so many years. She said she never had to worry about being pulled over because it was not common to her experience as a white woman. There, I, am, I, am, I have come to the place where I have accepted that this is what it is. Do you see what I'm saying? I have come, maybe what you, if I hadn't accepted it, I couldn't talk about it. Because maybe I would have personalized it and been hurt by the experiences. But I have come to the place to accept that it is what it is. I don't like it, and I have to talk about it because it's injurious. Don't think I feel good about what my daughter experienced with her law degree when people worked in that environment, never even finished college, but treated my daughter as if she were a piece of garbage when she has a law degree and comes from a different social background than they could ever come from. You think I feel good about that? Imagine how I must have felt. If it were your kid, you would have marched down to the city. You would have led a protest about it. Hmm. Think on these things. Do you see now? That's how I felt. When my daughter came home and complained and complained, I was like, this can't be. Right here in Southeast Michigan at a law firm in Sinclair Shores. I remember telling a friend of mine who is, uh, you know, about town, and her reaction was just, hmm, you know why? She's used to it. She knew it was going to happen. She's used to it. Didn't phase her or anything. And I'm like, you're comfortable with this thing? I'm like, that doesn't work for me. That does It just doesn't work for me. So there are varying degrees of how, like I said, how people react to it. What you're experiencing is my reaction to it. There are most people that are just like, I don't want to cause trouble. I don't want to say anything. I don't even want them to know I'm here. And I'm like, peace on that. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, just no, just no, no, right? It's tough to contemplate, but it is what it is. And I know you feel, you understand, because now you have given me some some respect that, you know, something I've never walked in your shoes. I don't know what you've experienced, but you're a credible person, so I'm going to take what you say. And thank you for that. Because it's not your experience. Just like if you were to tell me what you experienced, I am going to accept it and validate you in your experience because that's what happened to you. Just like when I tell you that they beat me up, my ex-husband beat me up, you immediately respect that because that's what happened to me. Just because it hasn't happened to you didn't mean that it didn't happen to me. Right? Well, that's the same thing. We're different. And the society knows we're different and treats us differently based on perceived differences. 
My problem is that this is skin deep. I have asked doctors, when you cut a human being, what kind of blood comes out? Red. What lies beneath the skin? Well, it's a patchwork and a network of cells and tissue and muscle and blood. That's what lies between the skin. I said, really? So beneath the skin, you don't see black, white, yellow, green, or red? No. All we see is the human composite of what makes a human being tissue and a complex set network of cells and tissue and blood. That's my problem. Why are you treating me differently because of this instead of treating me based on what's in here and what's on the here? That's my issue. You're looking at this, and this is skin deep. I mean, this changes. We don't even really know what this is. It's kind of like a covering over the cells and the tissue and all that. And you're still going to base the content of who I am and what I have done or what I can do based on this. You got to be kidding me. That's my problem. That's my hang up. That's my thing. That that is flawed in its thinking. And I have seen over time where that has created barriers that it looks like it's going to take us another thousand years to erase. It's not going to go away just so quickly. We, the demographics of this great nation are, is going to change in a matter of time. But is the thinking going to change? Something to think about, right? What will happen? That's my story. My name is Harriet Kemmicks. This has been Down to Earth. Thank you for your comments and the the interest that you have shown in joining me today. I hope you have heard something that will empower you, motivate you, and inspire you. I'm still going to say go Chiefs. I'm still today going to say go Chiefs. It was one of the best Super Bowl games ever. I totally, totally felt totally invested in that game. I was so thrilled when the game had come to an end. I'm telling you, that Super Bowl game was was worth it. It was worth it, right? Uh, make sure you go to my website, harrietkemuk.com, as well as go look up my pages. I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Follow me on Twitter. All of you who are watching, can you follow me on Twitter? That would be nice, yeah? I'm also on Instagram. And, of course, go to my page on Anchor FM and support this podcast so we can continue to bring more stories like these to you. Right? You can also listen to us, tell others. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. There's so many other ways to listen to the Down to Earth podcast. It's unbelievable. And shout out to everybody who joins us uh, from my producer looks at our analytics. And I just want to give a shout out to all the nations of the world, from folks in the UK, hey, <laughs> right? Folks in Namibia, Switzerland, Bangladesh, hey, how's it going? New Zealand, thank you. <laughs> folks all over the world, and of course from the Caribbean who continue to listen to us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I am truly, truly, truly inspired and blessed by your participation. And to you, my folks on Periscope and Twitter, thank you. I can rely on you for being there. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you, and thank you, and thank you. Follow me on Twitter, though. I don't see you all hitting me up on Twitter. What's up? Right? And especially you who left such comments Why don't you, let's talk. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. I really like your feedback. Thank you for even taking the time out to answer me. Thank you. Thank you. Right? 
right? Thanks so much, everybody. They're giving me the wrap-up. I got to go. Thanks, everybody. Be blessed. Wow, I got to go.